As we read God's Word this morning, we'll begin in chapter 26 and verse 3. Hear now the Word of God. If you walk in my statutes and observe my commandments and do them, then I will give you your rains in their season. The land will yield its increase and the trees of the field shall yield their fruit. Your threshing shall last to the time of the grape harvest and the grape harvest shall last to the time of sowing and you shall eat your bread to the full and dwell in your land securely. I will give peace in the land. And you shall lie down, and none shall make you afraid. I will remove harmful beasts from the land, and the sword shall not go through your land. You shall chase your enemies, and they shall fall before you by the sword. Five of you shall chase a hundred, and a hundred of you shall chase ten thousand, and your enemies shall fall before you by the sword. I will turn to you and make you fruitful and multiply you and confirm my covenant with you. You shall eat old store long kept, and you shall clear out the old to make way for the new. I will make my dwelling among you, and my soul shall not abhor you. I will walk among you, and I will be your God, and you shall be my people. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, that you should not be their slaves. I have broken the bars of your yoke and make, made you walk erect. Our Father, we are thankful for your word that teaches us the truth that you have given and trust of those who have testified to you, to hear from it and that you would exalt yourself through it, even as you have already exalted yourself this morning through the redeeming work of our Lord Jesus Christ and the lives of those who have testified to you. We praise you for that. Continue to give yourself glory as we now hear from you, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. In an interview with Mark Reibling, an atheist and a historian, he was discussing why ISIS is successful in recruiting young men. And this atheist actually had a very fascinating argument for a a need to have a larger purpose in life than yourself. And he's claiming as we become more and more secular, we've lost our purpose. He would would, uh, say in this interview, for 500 years we've seen in the progress of science the demythification of the world. The magic's all gone, but the monsters remain. He goes on and says, many are tempted to join ISIS for excitement, for re-enchantment, for re-mythification. If you join ISIS, you have a story. It is as you're living in the Iliad or channeling the Teutonic Knights instead of saying, just playing soccer in the dust in a housing project in Basra. He concludes in this interview, explaining in other words, the appeal of ISIS is the same as that of Nazism. They both provide a meta-narrative. Stories that define your world view, that many find more meaningful than the disenchanted one of the secular West. Now, find there's World War II his, uh, historian who has rejected the existence of God, and yet he 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 sees the truth that ISIS recruits the same way that Hitler did. It gives someone something to live for. 
What do you live for? What, what gets you out of bed in the morning? Why do you do what you do? I remember a conversation I heard of a, of a pastor with a man who was running a french fry stand in Manhattan. His name was Michael. And the pastor said, Michael, what do you want? And Michael said, what, what do you mean? He said, well, well, what do you want in life? Michael thought for a moment and said, you know what, I would like to finish my MBA. The pastor said, that's good. Well, then what? Michael said, well, you know, I'd like to buy, buy out my partner in this french fry stand. And the pastor said, okay, that's great. And, and then what? Michael thought for a moment and said, well, you know, I'd like to maybe buy a whole string of french fry stands. And the pastor said, okay, that's great. So that, let's say, Michael, you get your MBA and you buy out your partner and you have a whole string of french fry stands. Then what? Michael said, well, you know, I would like to get married one day and have kids. And the pastor said, okay, great. So you, you have your MBA, you have a string of french fry stands, you're married, you have kids, and, and then what? Michael said, well, I, I guess I'd like to earn enough money to retire early. The pastor said, okay, I, I understand that. So you have your MBA, you have a string of french fry stands, you have a wife, you have children, you have enough money, you retire early, then what? And Michael thought for a moment and said, well, then you die. And I, I believe that's how the majority of people that live around you and I, that's what they're living for. It's emptiness. Just kind of get as much out of this life as I can while I can. Get as much ease as I can. And then you die. I wonder, what do you live for? Why are you... Well, Leviticus 26, I believe, offers... Gets you out of bed. I think for some, if we would actually consider why it is that I'm living, we would find a a vacuum in our heart. Well, Leviticus 26, I believe, offers to fill that vacuum. I think it gives us a reason to live. We are now in the uh, end of our 13th, we, our 13-week series in the book of Leviticus. And I, I, I'm happy to say I think the church survived, right? Praise the Lord. Um, I hope I kept my word. I told you when we started, this will be one of the top five sermon series in Leviticus you've ever heard. I hope I have succeeded as we come to the end of this book. To be perfectly honest, um, uh, this book has been a rich, rich blessing for me. I hope it has for you. It has it been incredibly practical in my life, and, and I'm, I'm sad in many ways to leave it excited to go, get back into Luke. But we know, of course, in Leviticus, God is creating a people for the first time. He's creating a a nation. He's redeemed them out of bondage in Egypt, brought them to the foot of Sinai. And he says, okay, I want you to understand who I am. I I, I want to dwell with you. You're going to build me a tabernacle. I'm going to live right in the middle of you. And we're going to plant a new Eden in the middle of this wilderness. But then the question comes up, if God's going to live with us, what do we do with our sin? The first half of the book of Leviticus says, okay, we have sacrifices and we have priests, right? We have the Day of Atonement. We have ritual purity. And God says, okay, this is how we deal with sin. And then the second half of the book of Leviticus, God says, okay, now that we understand how to deal with sin, I want you to be like me. I want you to live like me. I want you to treat each other like I would treat you. I want you to be holy, right? Live this way. And if you obey me and you live this way, God says in Leviticus 26, you understand you'll be in the sphere of my blessings and you will find abundance and joy. But if you walk away from me, if you rebel against me, you will find misery and sadness. And so we come to Leviticus 22 and it's the end of this covenantal book and there's really two paths to choose. The path of obedience, 
which brings God's blessings. And the path of rebellion, which brings God's judgment upon them. It's almost in the same way we saw the two goats on the Day of Atonement. One goat goes into the presence of God. The other goat is cast out into the wilderness of death and decay and destruction. And God says to the people of Israel, these are the paths that lie before you. These are the behaviors that I uh, want you to live. Now, I think we need, before we look at these paths, we need to get out of our mind. Some, somehow this gets into the Christian mind that what God said in the Old Testament, He says, okay, uh, you, you need to do these things in order to have a relationship with me. That is not true. God is already in relationship with them. He's already their God. He's already redeemed them through the blood of the Passover lamb. And so God is not saying, earn your relationship with me. He's saying, now that we're in a relationship, this is how you are to act in that relationship. Every relationship you have, there are expected standards of behavior, right? So I've been married for 20 years. I did not have a, a, a probationary period of faithfulness to Allegra, and after I successfully completed that, she became my wife. That's not how it worked, right? She became my wife, and now, as her husband, I am to be what? I am to be faithful to her and to devoted to her. There's expected behavior in that relationship. This is what God is saying. We're in, I'm your God. I've redeemed you. Now, now that I'm your God, I want you to live this way. It's the same it's in the New, New Testament. Christ is our Savior. We are to live a certain way in light of that truth. God says, and if you do, if you live this way, I'm going to bless you. If you walk away, if you're unfaithful to me, you're going to experience my discipline. And, and I think, by the way, Leviticus 26 is so important. The rest of the Old Testament can really be understood in light of this chapter. Like, what's happening here? Why are they being blessed? Why are they being exiled? Why are they going back? It's all Leviticus 26 kind of gives us a framework to understand the rest of Scripture. So God says, obey me. Now, there's not a lot of commands in Leviticus 26, just the consequences of obedience and disobedience. There are three commands. Look in verse 1. He says, you shall, first command, you shall not make idols for yourself or erect an image or a pillar. And you shall not set up a figured stone in your land to bow down to it. I am the Lord your God. First command, don't make any idols. As I've shared with you in the past, Israel will be alone in this mandate. Every single ancient civilization made idols to their gods. Israel alone did not, right? They would not do what the surrounding nations are doing. By the way, we still do this. People still bow to idols and kiss idols and burn candles in front of idols in order to curry their favor. I remember when I was on my honeymoon with Allegra and we were in... uh, privileged to be in Rome, and we went and visited St. Peter's Basilica there at the Vatican, and I, I remember the, the, the line of pilgrims exiting the, the uh, St. Peter's Basilica as they waited uh, in front of this giant statue of St. Peter sitting on his papal throne in order to either rub his big toe or to kiss it. And they were in hours waiting that they might be able to touch this icon as if it, somehow that's going to bless them. And God says, listen, you're not to make any images like that. And you know why? It's because they are to be the image of God. So you want to show what the world, what, what I'm like? Then be like me, God says. And the same is true for us as God's people today. We are to show God, God, people what God is like. The second command he gives them is to keep their Sabbaths. Verse 2, you shall keep my Sabbaths. We've considered this quite extensively. They are to, to take a day off, give up a paycheck every seven days as they trust God to provide for them and rest and worship Him. 
And then the third command is there to reverence his sanctuary, his tabernacle. You see that in the end of verse 2. Reverence my sanctuary, I am the Lord. They're to be in awe of God's presence. They're to esteem Him highly. Hallowed to be Your name. Habakkuk would say, The Lord is in His holy temple. Let all the earth be kept silent before Him. And so there's just kind of a summary of the commands of God. The rest of the chapter fleshes out what happens if they obey and what happens if they walk away from God. So let's begin, as God does, considering the blessings of obedience. There are three. We could group them into three. The Lord blesses, first of all, by providing for them, for provision. Verse 3. If you walk in my statutes and observe my commandments and do them, then I will give you your rains in their season. And the land shall yield its increase. And the trees of the field shall yield their fruits. Your threshing shall last to the time of the grape harvest. And the grape harvest shall last to the time of sowing. And you shall eat your bread to the full and dwell in your land securely. Right? When they lived in Egypt, the agricultural system in Egypt, they would depend upon the routine stages of the Nile. Once they're in the promised land, they're completely dependent upon rain. And God says, I'm going to send the rain in the right amount at the right time, and it will produce such a crop that you'll still be harvesting when it's time to sow next year's crop. It will be a land of abundance, right? Full refrigerator. Two-car garage. God says, I am going to provide for you. By the way, the New Testament picks up on this theme. Jesus is always speaking of the promised land, the place where we are going as a place of feasting, as a place of celebrating. The first miracle the Lord ever did, He was in Canaan. What did He do? The party ran out of wine. And He says He made wine so that the party can continue. And God's saying, this is what the kingdom's like. It's celebrating and joy and provision and and happiness. God has made us physical beings. And many of our greatest delights in this world are physical. A good meal is, is a great blessing, isn't it? And God blesses His people in physical ways. He does so even today. So let's not spiritualize this too much. There's some of that, but Lord, teach us to pray. Okay, when you pray, pray like this. Our Father who is in heaven, what? Give us this day our daily bread. Take care of us. The Lord Jesus Christ said in Matthew 6, verse 33, right? Uh, Seek first my kingdom and my righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. What things? Clothing, housing, food. God says, I will take care of you. The second blessing is peace. Look in verse 6. I will give peace in the land, and you shall lie down, and none shall make you afraid. And I will remove harmful beasts from the land, and the sword shall not go through your land. You shall chase your enemies, and they shall fall before you by the sword. Five of you shall chase a hundred, and a hundred of you shall chase ten thousand, and your enemies shall fall before you by the sword. God says, I'm going to remove the threats from this land, whether it's uh, the sword of a pillaging enemy or the maw of a ravenous beast. I'm taking it away. I don't know if you could imagine what it would be like to, as most of the world has lived this way, to, to live not knowing if the neighbors at any time are going to rise up a marauding band and come pillage your village, come destroy your crops, come take away your children. And, and, and God says, if you follow me, that will not happen to you. 
God said, obey me, and then in peace you will lie down and sleep, for I alone make you dwell in safety. I'll fight your battles. Just like he did with Gideon in 300. You know, armed with torches and pottery. Just like he did when Hezekiah, King Hezekiah, prayed when an army of 185,000 Assyrians had besieged his city, and God single-handedly defeated his enemies. In fact, this promise reminds me of a day when we, we, we won't be talking about ballistic missiles and nuclear-tipped warheads and tanks and guns and swords and spears. The Bible promises a day is coming and we'll take all those weapons and we'll, we'll beat those swords into, into rakes and shovels, right? Because we won't need them anymore. We, the lion will lie down with the lamb. We will be in total peace. God says, you obey me. I'll bring you into this land. I'll give you peace. And, and since you're, you have all the food you need and you're at peace from your enemies, what are you going to do? Verse 9, and I will in turn make you fruitful, multiply you, and confirm my covenant with you. They're going to have babies, right? You're just going to have lots of kids in this land of abundance. Well, how are we going to feed all these kids? Verse 10, right? You shall eat old store long kept and you shall clear out the old to make way for the new. They're throwing away the old food because they have some place, need some place for the new food. God says, I'll provide for you. I'll give you peace. And then the chief blessings to the people if they walk in obedience is God's presence. As you consider verse 11, I will make my dwelling among you and my soul shall not abhor you. I will walk, walk among you and will be your God and you shall be my people. This is, I don't know if you get the picture, God is, it's a, it's a return to Eden, isn't it? In many ways. Crops, peace, abundance, family, all in the midst of God's presence. God says, I'm going to walk among you like I did with Adam and Eve. In fact, it is God's presence that is the climax of all these blessings. You understand that? It's not the food. It's not the, the safety. It's being with God that is the chief blessing. Just like your relationship with your spouse, right? Your spouse might do things for you. They might prepare your dinner or wash your clothes or pay the bills or take out the trash. And all those things are wonderful, aren't they? But, but, but you could hire somebody to do those things. The blessing in your spouse is their presence. It's sharing life together, making memories together. It's it's expressing and receiving love. And God says, listen, I'll bless you, but you get other people to bless you. You want to know the chief blessing I'll do? I'm going to be with you. I'm going to live with you. I'm going to walk with you. And you're going to belong to me. All other blessings pale in comparison to the presence of God with his people. As John Piper put it beautifully, God is the gospel. You get God through Jesus, His Son. In fact, think about where they've come from. Right? Look at verse 13. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. That you should not be their slaves. I have broken the bars of your yoke and made you walk erect. I, just can't, I, I mean, we can't imagine, but just try. I mean, a year ago... They were, they were in bondage for 400 years to the most mighty empire in the world. Enslaved, they were reduced to the status of an animal bearing its burden while their masters laid whips upon their backs. And now God says, I want, I want to bring you into Eden. I, I want to bring you into a land of abundance. No lashes upon your backs. No just getting by. All you have, joy and freedom. And as you come as my people and obey me, and you begin to enjoy these blessings, you begin to show the world what it's like to follow its creator. So that the world will come and follow me too. Remember when Queen Sheba went to Solomon at the pinnacle of Israel's obedience, and she said, this pagan woman, Surely the Lord is among you, right? She saw it. 
She saw the blessings as they live under God's obedience. And God says, I'm going to bless you. Lush and abundant land, peaceful and prosperous society, God's presence. Now the question is, when we think about this, well, what about us? Right? I mean, how do we apply these truths? I mean, these are promises in the old covenant. What about us who live in a new covenant? And so I think we need to be very careful when we apply these promises. One of the reasons we need to be careful is that these promises are given to a nation, not to individuals. And so God is not saying every individual in, in, in every town in Israel is going to be fully blessed in every way. He's saying if you do this, your nation will prosper, but there will still be Israelites who will get sick or face tragedy. When we looked at this last week, when we saw that if you're poor, right, you might have be forced to sell your land. Or you can consider Leviticus 27, which we're just going to spend like three minutes on, which is the, lo- the laws of, of making vows to God. And see, you might make a vow to God or a pledge to God, and God wants to lay out the rules regarding that. Well, we do this. We make pledges um, to uh, America, don't we? Uh, we? We pledge our allegiance to the flag and to the republic for which it stands. We, we make vows to our spouse. You make a vow to this church if you, will, if you one day join this church. And at times people make vows to God. Often the vows are whispered in times of trouble, aren't they? You know, someone finds themselves in a difficult situation. They pray for deliverance. They say, God, if you take care of me here, I'll do this for you. You ever make one of those promises? We see that in the Bible. Jacob did. God, um, fleeing from Esau, his brother, deliver me safely and I'll tithe, Jacob said. We see in Jonah, making a vow from the belly of the whale. Historically, one of the most famous vows was given by Martin Luther um, about 500 years ago. Martin Luther, a law student, riding on his horse in the middle of a thunderstorm. He was so terrified, he prayed at that moment, St. Anne, save me, and I will become a monk. Right? Now, he was saved, but St. Anne didn't do anything for him, just to let you know. God saved him, and, and Martin Luther left law and became a monk and, and changed the world because of it. Right? So God says, okay, well, if you make these vows, I want you to understand you have to keep them. Because what, what we're tempted to do is we make a vow in the heat of a moment, and then the crisis passes, and the vows, in hindsight, they look a little foolish. Well, I didn't really mean that, or God really is not going to uh, hold me to that. And Leviticus 27 says, no, God is listening, and God is going to kill, hold you to it. If you make a vow, you keep it. And so the first eight verses of chapter 27, you might vow yourself. You say, God saved me here, and I'll give you myself. Well, you may make that vow, but you can't give God yourself that is, you can't go into full-time ministry. That's restricted to the Levites. So God says, if you make that vow, you have to figure out how much you're worth as a laborer, and you pay that much to the temple. Or you may vow an animal. And God says, you vow an animal, you better give it. Or the last part of the chapter, you might vow property. You might vow a house. And God says, if you make that vow, you better get it. give it. You want to keep it. You have to buy it back from me, plus 20%, God says. Right? And what God is saying is, listen... I want you to be serious before you make these vows. Because our tendency is to promise God much when we need help, but pay Him little when He provides it. And God says to do so is to disrespect me. And so the book of Ecclesiastes will say it's better not to make a vow than to make one and not fulfill it. My, my point in tying this back to Leviticus 26 is that vows are often made in times of hardship. Right? And, and so what we see even though God promises these blessings, 
and uh, for an obedient nation, there are still going to be people in difficult times. And so these are promises given to a nation. And I want to encourage you to beware of taking God's promises, especially under this old covenant, out of their context and applying it to our lives as like a one-to-one application. I remember when I, um, I, I gradu- uh, graduated from, from grad school. Um, you, know, you know what you do when you graduate from undergraduate school and you don't have a job? Right? You go to grad school, right? <laughs> and so uh, that's what I did. And, and I went to grad school, and I graduated from grad school, and you know, <laughs> still didn't have a job. I just a lot of debt. And uh, so a lot of well-meaning people in my life that, you know, they give you graduation gifts and cards and plaques and whatnot. And I, I remember uh, almost every other card had this same verse in it. And I think they were feeling sorry for me because I didn't know what I was going to do. And uh, it's Jeremiah 29.11. Maybe some of you know Jeremiah 29.11. I saw so much, it just kind of seeped into my heart. God God says, I know the plans I have for you. Plans to prosper you, not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. Right? Poor Stephen, let's encourage him. God has plans for you. But the problem is that Jeremiah 29.11 is not writing to unemployed former grad students. He's writing to a nation in exile. God's people. And God is saying, listen, Israel, I know you're in exile and captivity in Babylon, but I have plans for you. Understand, trust me in the midst of this. That's a misapplication of God's word. And we need to be very careful about taking these national promises, these um, old covenant promises, and applying them directly to our lives. But that raises the question, well, is there any application at all? Well, I think there is. We've already established that, that God does bless obedience, doesn't he? Matthew 6.33, my kingdom, my righteousness, I'll take care of you. But most of the blessings in the new covenant are spiritual. Right? God, God, God has, uh, has said, uh, even Jesus uh, on the Sermon on the Mount, right? Blessed are, are the poor in spirit, for they will inherit the kingdom of God. Blessed are those who mourn, for they'll be comforted. Blessed are those who thirst and hunger for righteousness, for they'll be fulfilled, right? Most of the blessings we find in the new covenant are spiritual. In fact, many followers of Christ today are not receiving lands of abundance and peace and security. They're receiving persecution and hardship as they try to follow Jesus in uh, closed and difficult countries. And we'll remember them as we recognize the International Day of Prayer coming up on the second week in November. That Christians are being persecuted. And so our blessings are, are mostly spiritual. But there is one blessing from Leviticus 26 that we can apply directly to us in, the, in this covenant. It's verse 12. He says, I will walk among you and I will be your God and you shall be my people. This is why Jesus has come. That God would walk among his people again. Right? And that God would ultimately point us back to the Eden which he will take us to. The new heavens and the new earth. 2 Corinthians chapter 6 says, We are the temple of the living God. We're the temple of God. As God said, quote, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Leviticus 26 verse 12. That God is with us. If you are a Christian today, Please understand that the Lord Jesus says, I am with you even to the very end of the age. You are not alone. You will never be alone. No matter how hard times get, no matter how uncertain the future is, Jesus says to you through his word, I am at your side. And you and I should live in an obedient way so that we could experience the blessings of the reality of God's presence with us one day culminating 
as we will walk through the blood of Christ into a new earth to be with the Lord, and there we shall see Him face to face. That's the blessing that He holds out to us. Is that your hope? Is that what you're living for? I want to know God and one day live with Him forever. Philip Yancey recently wrote an article in Christianity Today about an experience his wife had visiting nursing homes in Chicago. And and when she would go and, and visit the predominantly white nursing homes, she found people to be very bitter these were uh, middle-class folks, some of them wealthy, and uh, they lived prosperous lives, and, and now they're bitter that life was coming to an end, health was failing, their friends are dying, and, and she was particularly struck by the bitterness of these professing Christians living in this environment. She would go visit the predominantly black nursing homes and have a totally different experience. Same age, health was just as bad. But she would notice over and over again that these people had hope and they had joy. There was no bitterness or lack of bitterness, especially in those who claimed to be Christians. And so Yancey wanted to know, what's the difference? This is what he wrote. She could only assume, because of a lot of the white churches had given up preaching the real hope of heaven, they would sign an orthodox statement of faith, but their hearts were really in the world. As the world began to slip through their fingers, they became bitter for what they really loved was taken from them. The black churches, he writes, again and again, the hope of heaven was clear. They had not stopped preaching it. So as older saints approached the end, they had hope. The hope of heaven. My, my brothers and sisters in Christ, as great as these blessings are in the Old Covenant, our blessings are 10,000 times greater. That one day we shall walk into eternity in a new world living with our God. That's what we are to live for. That's what we are to hope in. That's the promise that God has given us. But we also see that God not not only gives them promises for obedience, He explains there are curses for disobedience. There are five groups of curses, each one worse than the one before. The last really being, uh, I don't know another way to describe it other than hell on earth. And I want to consider these curses with you, but before we do, I want you to understand God is not eager to bring these punishments. That's why there's a warning. God will wait not just weeks, He'll wait years and decades and centuries before He'll actually bring these. Second thing I want you to know before we look at them is God's standard is not perfect obedience. It is not perfect obedience. It is not the first time you fail. Okay, bam, here it comes. God knows they're not going to be obedient. It's, that's why He gave them the sacrifices. That's why He gave them the priesthood. These are, these are for those who just simply walk away from Him and abandon Him as their God. The third thing I want you to note is that these are God's active punishments. There are two really two types of punishments. There are natural punishments. These are the natural consequences of sin. If you're lazy, you're going to be poor, most likely. If you get drunk a lot, you might lose your job. Those are the natural consequences of a natural punishment. These are not natural punishments. These are active punishments. This is what God does on top of those natural punishments. The reason I bring that up is there's an idea in Christian circles that God does not punish. He just lets you kind of deal with the consequences of your own sin. For instance, the supposedly Christian movie, The Shack, 
God says, I don't need to punish people for sin. Sin is its own punishment. Well, you'll see here that, that God says, no, I, am, I will discipline you. I will punish you. Sin, of course, does bring its own punishment. But by, the Bible constantly emphasizes that our God is a righteous God. And he will punish sinners. And so consider these five sets. The first would be panic. Verse 14. If you will not listen to me and will not do all these commandments, if you spurn my statutes, if your soul abhors my rules so that you will not do all my commandments, but break my covenant, then I will do this to you. I will visit you with panic, with wasting disease and fever that consume the eyes and make the heartache. And you shall sow your seed in vain, for your enemies shall eat it. God, God says there will be fear and disease and the enemy. You've been living in constant fear. Why? Because you don't listen to me. You sit under my teaching week after week, but you don't do what I say. You spurn my statutes. You hate my rules. Right? You say, God's not going to tell me what to do. I'm going to live my life. You break my covenant. God says, you, you say, I won't have you as my king. The response is God will bring panic. Even set his face against them. Verse 17, I will set my face against you and you shall be struck down before your enemies. Those who hate you shall rule over you and you shall flee when none pursue you. If they do not repent after that, God will send famine. Second curse. Verse 18, and in spite of this, if you will not listen to me, then I will discipline you Again, sevenfold for your sin, and I will break the pride of your power. And I will make your heavens like iron, and your earth like bronze. And your strength shall be spent in vain, for your land shall not yield its increase. And the trees of the land shall not yield their fruit. God says, I'm going to break your pride. The heart of rebellion is the heart of pride. I'm not going to have my Creator tell me what to do. I'm going to do what I want to do. Sometimes prosperity leads to pride, doesn't it? I have all I need. I, everything's taken care of. So I get to do what I want to do. I'm constantly struck by, I don't know, it seems weekly, a politician who's reached a pinnacle of success, or maybe even a pastor, right? Who has, has reached some success, and there, some explosive sex scandal comes out, or embezzlement, or something like that. And you look at the life they lived, and they, they lived a life of privilege and prestige, and you think, why would they do that? Why would they give it all up like that? I'll tell you why. One word. Because they're proud. They think I could do this. And I could get away with this. May God keep us. Hamilton Baptist Church. May God keep us from such sins. Right? And God says I'm going to judge you to humble you. There's going to be famine and want. The sky will be like iron, he says. Instead of rain, you'll have drought. I'm going to bring you down low so that you know you must depend on me. But if they will not repent, he brings a third punishment, that of scarcity. Verse 21. Then if you walk contrary to me and will not listen to me, I will continue striking you sevenfold for your sin. And I will let loose the wild beast against you, which shall bereave you of your children and destroy your livestock and make you few in number, so that your roads shall be deserted. Right? He says, I'm going to keep striking you until you turn. Don't be like Pharaoh's thinking, I could outlast God. How many more plagues can he have after all? Right? I'm going to endure this. God says, I'm going to keep coming at you. Right? Sending even wild beasts, he says, upon you. Reminds me of Elisha and the children, the boys, teenagers taunting the prophet, calling him old bald head. 
Remember that? And what happens? Bears come out from the woods as God promised and destroy them. Right? God is making these. These are not vain threats. He's, God will do these things. Fourth, they don't repent war. Verse 23, And if by this discipline you are not turned to Me, but walk contrary to Me, then I will also walk contrary to you. And I Myself will strike you sevenfold for your sin, and I shall bring a sword upon you that shall execute vengeance for the covenant. And if you gather within your cities, I will send pestilence among you, and you shall be delivered into the hand of the enemy. When I break your supply of bread, ten women shall bake your bread in a single oven, and shall dole out your bread again by weight, and you shall eat and not be satisfied. For Israel, wars were not just a political event. They're enemies sent by God to enact His judgment. The fifth curse, I don't know what to call it other than God's fury. Verse 27, But if in spite of this you will not listen to Me, but walk contrary to Me, then I will walk contrary to you in fury, and I Myself will discipline you sevenfold for your sin. And then He unleashes calamity after calamity after calamity. Verse 29, they're going to resort to cannibalism, which by the way, Israel would do, eating their dead because of sieges. Verse 30, He says, you worship your idols, your lifeless idols, your dead bodies are going to be thrown upon them, you'll become as lifeless as they will. Verse 31 through verse 33, says, I'm going to take you into exile. If you're not going to be distinct from the nations, you don't get to live in this Eden, this distinct place. Right? Look at verse 31. And I will lay your cities to waste and make your sanctuaries desolate, and I will not smell your pleasing aromas, and I myself will devastate the land so that your enemies who settle in it shall be appalled at it, and I will scatter you among the nations, and I will unsheath the sword after you, and your land shall be a desolation, and your cities shall be a waste. God says, you're not going to follow me. You don't get to live. You don't, you don't get to claim to be mine. By the way, this is why we, this is still our job as God's people to show the world what He is like. This is why we emphasize church membership so extensively here. This is why we require class. This is why we require covenant. So we want to, if you will, we want to make the door into this church a little bit narrow. So those who come in it truly understand what it means to belong to God and what it means to belong to His people. We make this clear. God is after a distinct people who bring Him glory. He says, while you live in exile, some will remain, but they are going to remain in constant fear. He says, they're going to run at the sound of a leaf. They're going to jump at their shadow. Eventually, they'll wilt away. Look down in verse 38. And you shall perish among the nations, and the land of your enemies shall eat you up. And those of you who are left shall rot away in your enemies' lands because of the iniquity and also because of the iniquities of their fathers, they shall rot away like them. It's like a wilting flower, deprived of water, just wasting away. I said, this way, if you're hostile to me, you spurn me, then I will remove you from the land of blessing and send you into the wilderness of decay and death. By the way, that's what happened. They would not listen to him. They would follow after false gods and spurn his commands and abhor his statutes, and God would send them off first by the Assyrians, and then eventually Babylon would come in 582 and finish the job, taking all of God's people out of God's land. You know why God's doing this? You know why He did it? Why He did it with Israel? Please understand this punishment is mixed with discipline. 
I don't know if you heard as we worked through these passages. Verse 18, I will discipline them. Verse 23, I will discipline them. Verse 28, I will discipline them. He's trying to get this nation to repent. The curses, therefore, are not evidence that God has forsaken them. He's trying to bring them around. And, and he's using a very heavy hammer to break a very hard heart. Right? Parents, you understand this. You don't stop loving your children when you discipline them. You could be for your children in being against your children. Right? Ask, to a, ask a parent of a, of a rebellious child about that. How can you be for your child while you're being against them? That's what God is doing. I'm going to give you a taste of judgment to lead you to the conclusion, I don't want that. Help me to live for you. Tell you, any trouble in this life that God brings upon us is a blessing if it brings us back to God. God wants them to repent. He wants them to turn back to Him, which is why He doesn't end with the curses, but He ends with more blessings. He ends this whole chapter with hope, as we consider lastly this morning, the Lord's hope. Look in verse 40. But if they confess their iniquity and the iniquity of their fathers in the treachery that they had committed against me, and also walk, walking contrary to me, so that I walked contrary to them and brought them into the land of their enemies. If then their uncircumcised heart is humbled, and they make amends for their iniquity. God says, if you repent, if you are honest in your confession of sin, if your hearts are humbled, if you are broken, if you start to follow me, then what? Verse 43 then I will remember my covenant with Jacob. I will remember my covenant with Isaac and my covenant with Abraham and I shall remember the land. Right? Jump down to verse 44. I will not spurn them, neither will I abhor them so as to destroy them utterly and break my covenant with them. For I am the Lord their God. But I will for their sake remember the covenant with their forefathers whom I brought out of the land of Egypt in the sight of the nations that I might be their God I am the Lord. God says, if you repent, I will remember. I will remember my covenant with Isaac and my covenant with Jacob and my covenant with Abraham. And I'll, I'll remember my covenant I made when I heard you groaning in Egypt. This, by the way, is not the formal language of a king. This is the language of love. I will not spurn you, God says. I will not abhor you, God says. I will, I will not forget you, God says. I will deliver you if you repent. And if you know the history of these people, they, they would repent, wouldn't they? They would be cast away into Babylon. They would turn back to Him. And God would say, okay, back into the promised land you come. And they would come back and they would rebuild the temple and restart the sacrificial system and reinstitute the priesthood. And they lived happily ever after. I'm afraid not. In fact, the, the temple was just second fiddle to Solomon's. And even more tragically, the glory of God never re-inhabited the temple as it did in Sinai, as it did in Jerusalem. And within years, they were back to the same old sins. And the covenant curses continued to hang over their heads. I want you to turn to the last book in the Old Testament. We're almost done. Turn to the book of Malachi. So if you could find the book of Matthew, which is the first book in the New Testament, you go towards the beginning of your Bible, one book, and we come to the last prophet, the prophet of Malachi. He's calling for the people of Israel who have now returned after their exile to repent. And I just want to look at the last half of the last verse in the Old Testament. Malachi 4, 6. 
God says to them, repent. And then He says, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. That's it. That's the end of the Old Covenant. Repent. The curse hangs over them. In other words, it's not working. Right? God had a plan to bless the world through this people, this nation called Israel. It has one flaw in that plan. You know what it is? Israel. Okay? People. And God says, despite my abundant blessings and my very stern warnings, they will not be faithful. And so he would start to raise up prophet after prophet who would talk about a new exodus and a new Passover that would create a new people uh, and bring about a new covenant. And this new covenant, God's people would, would experience God's presence in this new land of obedience, uh, a, a new earth and a new heaven. And one day this man, Jesus, shows up on the scene. And he begins to teach them. And he begins, as we've seen in Leviticus, he begins to teach them, I'll be your temple. I'm the presence of God. And I'll be your priest. I'll stand between you and God. And I'll be your sacrifice. I will be the one who will pay for your sin. And he, he, beyond that, as we've already seen that, he also says, I will be the seed of Abraham. I will be Israel. And I will keep the covenant flawlessly. So that he might receive the covenant blessings. So that you might. Because he who kept the covenant without fail would take upon himself the covenant curses for you and I. Galatians 3 verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, listen to this, the blessings of Abraham might come to us. So Jesus took upon Himself the covenant curses. Why? So that we might receive the covenant blessings of His obedience. He says, I will obey so that you who disobey Me might receive God's blessings upon yourself. And I, I hope this kind of imprints into your heart. God will not deal with you according to your sin. Four testimonies. Are you a sinner deserving to be separated from God? I am. I am. I am. Will you be separated from God? No. Because Christ was separated for me. And I want you to feel... I mean, we look at Leviticus 26, and this is heavy. These curses are weighty. And once you feel the weight of those curses you'll begin to feel the joy of the reality that God takes them all and He puts them on Jesus. And He says, I will bear the curse of the law so that you might receive the blessings of the law. You know why He does that? Because He loves you. He loves you beyond your imagination. And listen, we, like Israel, are not easy to love. And I'll tell you, the degree in which you understand that is the degree in which you see your sin and hostility to God is the degree in which you'll begin to imp be impacted by the love of God for one such as you. Right? It's because of His love. And it's this love. Why do we want to... Well, Christian, why do you want to obey God? Why do you want to obey God? And so, okay, well, I, I, because I want to be blessed? Okay, yeah, I, I think that's part of it, isn't it? I want to avoid discipline. God still disciplines, yeah. That's part of it. But why do you want to obey God? It's because of His love. 
I mean, Ava even said the verse, I believe it was Ava, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Christ's love compels us that we should no longer live for ourselves, but for Him who died for them and was raised. We live for Christ because of His love. My question to you is, what are you living for? What gets you out of bed in the morning? Is it to follow Christ? Because of the love in which He has poured upon you. Maybe you're here and you don't follow Christ. Maybe you're here and you're not a Christian. And we've looked at these curses and I've explained, I think they're, they're like hell on earth. And I, I tell you with great compassion in my heart, there's a day coming when God's judgment won't, won't be like hell. It will be hell. And He offers even now. Right? He does. The Savior has come to bear the curse for sinners. The curses can fall off you if you will repent. And receive His mercy. He says, I want to be merciful to you. I want to be gracious to you. But you have to humble yourself and bow your knee to me as a king. And give your life to me as we have seen testified before us. And if you do, listen, Christian. We read these curses and we think, okay, that's Old Covenant. What about the New Covenant? Is there a list somewhere in the New Covenant that if we are not faithful to God, okay, He's going to do this to us, He's going to do this to us, He's going to do this to us. Is there a list of New Covenant curses? And I tell you emphatically this morning, based upon the Word of God, no! There is no punishment for those who are in Christ Jesus because He has taken it all. How then shall we live with this Holy King? Is it through obedience? No. Is it through Aaron's sons? No. Is it through sacrifices? No. Is it through feasts and, and, and food laws? No. Is it through bulls and goats? No. We live with a holy king without fear forever under his blessing with indomitable joy forever and ever because of Jesus. Amen. Our Father, we are thankful for Jesus. That he would bear the curse of a holy God so that we who are wayward and unfaithful and deserving of eternal punishment instead, because of His love, might receive blessing upon blessing even now as the Spirit lives within us and Jesus is at our side today and forevermore and one day when we walk into a new earth and there with resurrected bodies live forever in a land of abundance and peace and your presence because of Christ. That's it. Let his sacrifice today and forevermore compel us to be people obedient to you that we might show the world what you are like. We ask all of this in Christ's name. Amen.